Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, if this is your first time or one of your first times, we're so grateful you came. I know sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. So thanks for doing that. If you're joining us online, I want to thank you also for doing that. You know, before I jump into what I want to say in um, John, I want to talk about kind of world, what's going on. You know, we, uh, there's a couple conflicts that are very much in the news, Israel and Gaza, Russia and Ukraine. But I looked online this week, you know, there's seven conflicts right now in which 10,000 or more people have died in combat in this last year. And there's another, there's another 14 where uh, 1,000 to 10,000 people have died. Let it just be fitting that we pray. We serve the one who says, I'm the Prince of Peace. That we be pray for this time. Um, yeah, that God would bring an, an end to these conflicts. He would preserve life. Uh, more than anything, his name would go forth. So would you bow your head and pray with me? So, Lord, we're saddened, grieved by what we see in the news. And I was amazed at some of the conflicts I hadn't heard of that are going on right now. And lives are being lost. Homes are being shattered. People are living as refugees on the run. Lord, you are the Prince of Peace. I realize humanity, we have pushed back. Um, but would you be at work bringing these conflicts to an end, protecting lives? And Lord, I've got to believe that there are Christians that work in every one of these conflicts trying to tell people about you. Would you use these really hard circumstances to point people to you, to point to the one who can ultimately bring, bring peace and ultimately will when he returns? Give these people hope. Protect lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So about 14 years ago, I had taken the car in for a, what I thought was a routine oil change. And the mechanic said, it's time for Andy to go car shopping. There's a leak at the head. That is, the fix is going to be more than the car's worth. Do you know what I did? Went car shopping. That guy's word was enough to get us as a family to drop 15 grand on a new car, a little Honda Civic. Why'd you do that? Well, we trusted this guy. He'd been my mechanic for eight years, and I believed he was a man of integrity, and he knew cars. You say it? Okay, we'll drop 15000 to get a new car. Okay, if someone like me will do that with a mechanic... Give them that kind of authority. How much more with the Savior of the world who left heaven, took on human flesh, died in Christ? Well, what does he have to do to get us to give him authority? Biblically, what is the extent of Jesus' authority? What should it, what should it be? We're going to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John 2, we'll start in verse 13, go through verse 25. Wrestling with that question, what is the extent of Jesus' authority? What is the extent of Jesus' authority? If you haven't been with us, we're about six weeks in to the Gospel of John. John presents Jesus as the Word, the self-expression of God who became flesh. He was there at the beginning. He's eternally existent. He's the one who spoke it into existence. He came on flesh so that, that we could get to know God. People say, God's big, He's infinite. How do you know? Well, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You, you can get to know God. He said, though, John told us that uh, God sent a forerunner. Uh, Israel had been without a prophetic word 
from God for 400 years and thought it'd be good if they got accustomed to hearing from God. So he sent John the Baptist. And John the Baptist got all kinds of crowds, all kinds. But he said, I, I, I ain't the guy. I'm not the light. There's a guy I'm not even fit to tie a sandal. His name's Jesus. And so even some of John the Baptist's disciples started following Jesus. And last week we saw the first of what we said will be seven signs that John saying, you know, in, in three years I had all this time with Jesus and I couldn't write him down, but I, I'm going to write down some of the stuff he did. Amazing stuff beyond explanation that you might come to the conclusion I did that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing in him you can have life. That's why this thing was written. That's why John did what he did. So we're coming off that experience um, of turning the water into wine. There's been a time of reflection, and Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. That's where we start in verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover was probably the biggest of the Jewish religious celebrations. It celebrated what had happened a thousand years earlier, that God had delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. What happened is God appeared to Moses, and Moses went to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, said, hey, you need to let these folks go. And Pharaoh thought, no, fat chance. That's some cheap labor. That's very good for my GDP. God said, okay, I'm going to send a series of ten plagues, and hopefully, Pharaoh, you'll get a clue. But he didn't. And the tenth one was... You're not getting it, so the firstborn in every house is going to die. Wake up, Pharaoh. But I'm going to pass over the Jewish people, the house of Israel. I'm going to spare that. So they're celebrating this Passover. Now, it's a religious holiday loaded with political implications. Israel right now is an occupied nation. In a sense, they're living in slavery to Rome. And these people think Passover, they think God will deliver again. Now, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, we'll see three Passovers. And in shot, we can mark the chronology of Jesus' ministry. This is Passover number one. So, everybody comes from all over the Roman Empire, from all over Israel, all the Jewish people, to celebrate the Passover. And this is what Jesus sees in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So what's the deal here? Um, for the Passover, everybody had to offer an animal sacrifice, a sheep. Well, if you're coming from a long way, that's kind of a hassle to take that animal with you. So there are business people who said, well, I'll sell an animal and we'll set up shop and you can just buy it rather than having to carry one all the way. You can, you, can, you can buy one. And then every male 20 years or older, older had to have, pay a half shekel tax. Jesus paid that tax. But from, they're coming from all over the Roman Empire. Different kind of coins. They wanted to keep a purity of the offering. So you, you would trade whatever coinage you had for whatever was acceptable. So these people would set up shop. But you can imagine the closer you get to the temple... Well, the more convenient it is. Well, these folks moved right into the temple. And this is what Jesus observes. He's not very happy about it, as we'll see in verses 15 and 16. Here we go. And he, Jesus, made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen 
and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Jesus was forceful, wasn't cruel, didn't bring in the Roman guard, but he's direct, get out. Jesus says, man, why are you so uptight? It's not a question of corruption here. That's not what's implied. But the atmosphere. See, this was supposed to be a, a house of reflection because the temple is where you go to meet God. It's a house of reflection. You become a house of commerce. And the solemn, solemn dignity and murmur of prayer that is fitting for a place you meet God, well, that's been replaced by the bellowing of sheep. And the heart of uh, contrition and brokenness, well, that's been replaced by a heart of, uh, let's see how much money we can make. Let's do the calculations. Jesus said, now, that's just not right for the temple. Take this outside. And so he drives the people out. Later, remember John writes afterwards, after Jesus' death and resurrection, after his ascension, and really many years after the ministry, so he's reflecting back. Verse 17, he says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, what was it about the temple? I don't think it was anything about the building per se, but it's what it's signified. It was the place you came to meet God. And this is significant. We, we need to guard that place where you meet God. Jesus thought so much of meeting God. In, in John 1.14, it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, I, I think it's so important that you meet God. I'm going to come down in your terms. I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to take on human flesh. And, and, and so Jesus wanted to guard this place that you meet God. Until his death and resurrection, the, the temple was that place. So he's jealous for it. We need to maintain what it's supposed to be. There's a question among people who read the Gospels because they'll, if you read your Gospels, you know there's a, a second cleansing of the temple that happens just before Jesus' crucifixion. So scholars spend, spend a lot of ink talking about was there two or was there one? Did John take that and, and move it for thematic reasons? I think the best conclusion here is that Jesus did it at least twice. And the Gospel... Um, Writers recorded happening twice. The, 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 the temptation to um, make money was just too much for people to stay out. And Jesus said, you can have your business, but not in the temple. So he, he cleans this out, the temple out. And the Jews have a question to him. Verse 18, they said, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Who are you? They're not questioning whether or not he should do it. But who are you? to go cleansing the temple. What is your authority? What are your credentials to do this, Jesus? Now, let me put it this way. You're out having a nice meal, 
in a restaurant and, and a 12-year-old boy comes up and says, hey, you need to clear the restaurant because we've gotten a, a credible threat about a bomb or something. Well, a 12-year-old boy, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I'm buying that. But a uniformed police officer shows up to look, we need to get you out now. Well, man, that's a lot more credible. We'll, we'll leave. See, see, they're seeing Jesus as the 12-year-old boy. Who are you to do this? Jesus said, I got more than enough authority to do this. So he responds. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus spoke metaphorically, sometimes enigmatically, cryptically, because he's speaking to the people who want to know who he is. But for people who weren't interested and who weren't interested in diving into the metaphor, they don't get it. It's, and and, and the, the Jews are that way. It says, verse 20, it says, The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? So what had gone on? 20 B.C., Herod, the Roman prefect, knew he wasn't a favorite of the Jewish people. So he thought, I'm going to start a, a, a rebuilding project. We're going to redo the temple, and we're going to make it look really, really nice. And he's hoping to win favor with the Jewish people. That project took 46 years. So depending on how things shake out, it's been open a couple years. So these people have been waiting for this project for 46 years. And Jesus said, you know, I'm going to drop the temple, and I'm going to raise it again in three days. Dude. You're whacked that you're going to pull this off in three days, which took 46 years. Again, they don't get the metaphor, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, his body would become the place where we meet God. But the destruction of the temple, well, that's a reference to his crucifixion. And that would indeed happen. You would hang on a cross, and on a Friday afternoon, they stick a spear in his side and they would confirm he's dead and they'd wrap him up and they'd put him in a tomb and they'd put a big rock over it and they'd put a Roman guard to keep him in that tomb three days Friday Saturday Sunday would come the raising up now you know in this day and age destroying a sacred religious temple or artifact was a capital offense. So when Jesus went to trial three years later, that's one of the charges they brought up against him. Here's what it said in Mark at Jesus' trial. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say he will destroy this temple made with hands. In three days he will build another one made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So they had a capital offense. He threatened the temple, but they couldn't get their testimony right. So what do we got? So finally, out of frustration, the, the high priest asked Jesus, hey, are you, I'm putting you under oath, are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, yeah, I am, and you're going to see me coming in power one day. We got him. And that led to Jesus' crucifixion and his death for, for three days until he rose again. Again, verse 22, looking back, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had spoken. 
What did they understand? The temple was no more the place to meet God. The temple was replaced by Jesus. His body was the place to meet God. In my years of campus ministry, pastoral ministry, you know, God, Andy, God's so big, he's infinite. How would we ever, how would we ever get a hand for us finite people? Hey, God's made it easy for you. It's, it's a one-stop deal. Look at Jesus. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. That's where you and I can meet God. It's a pretty big statement about authority. What's the extent of Jesus' authority? Jesus' authority makes him the place we meet God. Jesus' authority makes him the place we meet God. Remember that mechanic said you need to go car shopping? That's going to be 15 grand. Okay, you say it, we'll do it. But you've got that, Mr. Mechanic, you've got that kind of authority in my life. Here's what Jesus is saying to you and me. You want to meet God? Is that, is that what you, you really want to meet God? You need to come to me. That's pretty bold. But that's John's testimony. For three years, he, he walked with this guy in public ministry. And he saw him do all kinds of crazy stuff that only God could do. And he decided to write his, his gospel for you and for me. Last week, we looked at the first of what will be seven signs of John providing evidence to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John got to the end of his gospel, and he, he did kind of a spoiler alert. This is, he said, this is why I'm writing. Here we go. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I didn't have enough time, John says. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Are you here looking to meet God, meet with God? Let me, I can reduce it. It's Jesus. And what gets in the way is your rebellion and my rebellion against God. We push back. We say, God, you, do, you go your way, I'll go mine. The Bible calls that sin. Jesus came 2,000 years ago and lived life you and I were supposed to live. Complete submission right up to the point of the crucifixion. He rose again three days later. You need to believe in him. You need to trust in him to be right with God, to begin that relationship, to begin knowing and understanding God. For what? For the forgiveness of your sin, your rebellion. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do it right now. That's why John wrote that you could know this forgiveness and know the life God offers. Fully buying into the authority that is rightly Jesus Christ. I said that because there's a group of people we're going to read about here in these next three verses. They bought into Jesus to a point, but Jesus didn't buy into them. There's actually a word play in the Greek in verses 23 and 24. It says, these people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Let me read those verses. Now, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. I mean, they couldn't help, but man, this guy's got something going. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew what was in their heart. And, and here's what the scriptures tell us about these people. They wanted Jesus on their own terms, for all their reasons. Some of them wanted to make Jesus king. Boot the Romans. Mm, Jesus isn't having it. 
Verse 25, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't need us to be affirmed. He doesn't need us for his mission to be successful. God has called him, and Jesus is certain that the people who the Father has given will come to him. So he doesn't bow, he doesn't count out, he doesn't go, wait a minute, can I dick or can I deal with you? But many of, in you, of you in here have followed Jesus for a number of years, and I'm, I'm, I rejoice with you. But are we some of those people who want Jesus on our terms? Jesus can do this for me, and he can do that, but if you want this or that, are you going to call this or that out? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm interested. Let me tell you, I, I come to a faith um, in February of my freshman year. Within Eight weeks, two months, I have found out that Jesus is going to redefine financial security for me. I'd come to think if I get in a certain major and a certain job, I could be secure. And, and these guys said, no, you, you need to lay that down before Christ and, and uh, trust in him for your financial security. Well, that's pretty big. Then this is what really hit home. Jesus wants to define who I can date. He only wants me to date. Women who profess Christ. Man, I'm not doing that well. Are you going to narrow my field? Jesus will get in your business. And that, that's just the first eight weeks. Within 15 years of trusting Christ, I'm on a, a mission in Siberia. Seriously? I never thought, I never had plans on going to Siberia. Jesus will get in your business. And let me tell you, I'm glad. I'm glad I submitted to Jesus in those areas. But at the time, I didn't like it. Who are you to tell me what? Because he's a person of authority. And these people here in verses 23 to 25, they want Jesus on their terms. Here's what you can do for me. Jesus ain't interested in that. He wants to be the authority in your life. He says, it goes, it goes. That doesn't, it doesn't. Will you take Jesus on his terms? Because he wants fullness of life for you. He does. More than you can imagine. But that means you're going to have to submit to him. You're going to have to follow him. So about mm, 10, 12 weeks ago, I had a little crown. How many of you have a crown? Anybody have a crown? They're, they're great, aren't they? They're the best. Well, this one comes off. Pop, it comes off. And this has been coming off several times. And the dentist said, hey... Hey, 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 if this happens again, we're going to have to reshape the tooth. So we're going to cement it on one more time. And then if it doesn't, you come see me and we're going to have to do some work. So about six weeks later, about 1.45 in the morning, I feel something and it's like, it's that crown. So I call and make that appointment. And here's what the dentist says we're going to do. We're going to take a shot. Remember that? Have you guys had this, this shot? We're going to put it back there. We're going, to, we're going to let that numb up for a little bit. It'll tingle for about four hours. Then, then we're going to get the drill out. Remember that? You guys know that sound? You love that sound? And then the smell? And here's the most galling thing about that experience. I had to pay money, money for this. And this guy, he gives me a price break, but I had to pay hundreds of dollars to have him do this. Why did I do that? 
because I trust in his authority. He's been my dentist for 21 years. He's got a DDS, a doctor of dental science. And what he told me is, if we don't fix this right, you're going to have bigger problems down the road. So I said, okay, I'll submit to your authority. How much more? Well, the Son of God came and died for you. If you're the only person, Jesus would have died for you. And he was there at creation and he'll, he'll bring the world to an end. How much more do we need to give him full authority? What's the extent of Jesus' authority? You know, the big, 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 infinite God. Jesus is the place we meet this God. Jesus is the place we meet God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for, for Jesus and um, he becoming the temple, becoming the place we meet God. Thank you for the sacrifice, the cost he bore that we might meet the infinite God. Thank you that he put God on our terms. Lord, I, I pray we wouldn't be like some of these people described in verses 23 and 24 where we want Jesus in our terms. Man, ain't interested, not interested. Father, to the degree that we're holding out and giving you authority, would we submit, would we submit those areas of our life to you? We might take you on your terms, full authority. I pray in Christ's name, amen.